All right. Well, let me open this word of prayer and then we'll jump in. Lord, thanks for today and for all these folks gathered uh, here and over the internet. And so, Lord, pray that uh, this time would be productive. Help us to, to, to think well, to learn uh, your word in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Uh, turn to, uh, so I'm going to talk about why I believe in inspiration. All right. So that was the, uh, um, Remember last week we talked about um, last week we talked about the uh, inspiration and inerrancy. The church has always held that inspiration and inerrancy is in the autographa. Do you know what we mean by autographa? In the original writings. Yeah, yeah. Um, We even raised the question last time about the issue in Romans five one. Remember that um, Romans five one. There's a textual issue there uh, about whether uh, whether the word there should have a short o, which would look like an o. It's an o in Greek, or a long o, which looks like a w. Um, and that would change the um, the meaning from "We have peace" to "Let us have peace." We have peace will be a long O. Let us have peace will be a short O. And remember, we talked about who wrote Romans. And everyone said Paul. Paul. And I said, "Well, have you read it? <laughs> who wrote Romans?" Secretary. Yeah, his secretary wrote Romans. That's right, Tertius. Yeah, yeah. So, so Paul um, often, I would say, uh, almost always writes with a, um, call it an immensus, a, uh, someone who actually pens it for him. Um, we do have um, uh, at least one book we know of, which was written by Paul. Um, this is in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Uh, I'm sorry, chapter 3, verse uh, 17. I, Paul write this greeting with my own hand. This is my distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. <laughs> so, uh, other, uh, other books, uh, I'll probably uh, dictate it. Yeah, Galatians. Uh, yeah, 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 Galatians, yeah. So we've got some examples of Paul writing, but not always does Paul write with his own hand. Okay, so, uh, so the autographer, uh, the original uh, writing, and then you say, well, was it a short O or a long O? Because they sound the same when Paul dictated it to Tertius. What did Tertius write down? We don't know because we don't have the original letter to the Romans. So then it becomes a question, what did Paul mean? But anyway, so inspiration and inerrancy are more than just a claim, uh, particularly when People quote verses out of context and then say that the the Bible's inspired, right? <laughs> so really, what they mean is their interpretation of the Bible is inspired since they're quoting the verse out of context, which that's not the way it works. Okay. Um, so I remember when I was writing uh, my dissertation, which was uh, we don't have to go into that, um, but it was. In the area of philosophical hermeneutics and literary illusion. 
sounds fancier than it is. Um, and, uh, and so I wanted to pick a passage where everybody knew that there was an illusion. Everybody kind of accepted it. So turn over to, uh, to Judges 19. Um, and we're going to get Judges 19 and Genesis 19. Uh, easy to remember, two 19s, Judges 19, uh, Genesis 19. Genesis 19 is um, Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay. So uh, I guess we'll actually let's start in, uh, in Genesis 19. Okay. Uh, and what we're going to learn uh, today or, or be reinforced today. Alert from no is, backups for 11 days. Is that, um, this, that you have to know the story to interpret, uh, interpret the Bible. And so Genesis 19, there were two angels that came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting at the gate of Sodom, okay? Um, when you're reading this story, pay attention to the different players and their roles in the story, okay? You have two angels, you have Lot, then you have the men, men that surround the city, right? Um, or surround uh, the men of the city surround uh, Lot's house, but let's uh, let's pick it up in verse uh, verse one. When Lot saw them, he arose. Remember, these angels in chapter eighteen were talking with Abram, and they tell Abram, "We're going to go down there and wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah." And you remember, Abram, Abraham at this point negotiates with the Lord uh, on saving the righteous. What if there are a hundred righteous? What if there are fifty? And he negotiates down to ten. What if there are ten righteous? And the Lord says, I will not destroy the city. So the angels are going down to deliver the righteous and then destroy the city. Okay? And so they show up in the gate of the city. Um, those of us who went to Israel, we remember what those gates looked like. Do you remember that? It had a, a section. It's not just like a gate, but there's actually a kind of like a room. Um, and Lot was there, uh, verse 1. Uh, Genesis 19. I said Genesis. Genesis 19, right? Uh, when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down his face to the ground. Uh, and he said, Now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Uh, then you may go uh, and rise early and go on your way. Um, they said, No, we will spend the night in the square. And he urged them not to. And, and um, you know the story. Uh, so they go to the house, the men of the city surround the house, um, and um, Lot pleads with them, verse, uh, verse 7, please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. And then he has two daughters, uh, and he, um, he's um, going to offer his two daughters to these men. You're trying to figure out what's Lot thinking, right? And then one of the angels opens the door sends forth his hand, strikes uh, the men of the city, and, um, you know, strikes them with blindness and all this. Remember the, you remember the story? Okay. Now, uh, the same thing is going to happen in Judges 19. Now, at the end of Genesis 19, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah is going up, going up in smoke. Everybody remember the story? Okay, uh, fast forward. Israel, uh, you know, uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, 
the 12 sons have gone down to, to Egypt. The nation has, uh, people of the nation have multiplied. And Moses delivers them in the Exodus, takes them into the wilderness. They wander for 40 years, gives them the book of Deuteronomy, preaches his last sermon. They go take the land, book of Joshua. Remember this? There's a story along the way that you have to know that's going to come up in Judges 19 as well. Now, remember, uh, Israel was to go into the land. They were to utterly destroy the Amorites, the Hittites, the Canaanites, and the Jebusites, you know, all, the, all the peoples of the land. Um, and so they go. The first city... <laughs> They question the Lord what happened. Um, uh, he tells them, you know, that there was this, this there's uh, someone who was keeping the, the spoil of the city for themselves. They weren't supposed to do that. Uh, it was Achan. And so then uh, they go to battle again, they lose. And finally, they, they go to battle and they win. And at the end of that story, the city of Ai is going up in smoke. Okay? It's a different language. The going up in smoke is a different language different wording than going up in smoke in Sodom and Gomorrah. Everybody tracking so far? So Israel was supposed to go in, take the land, and utterly destroy all of the foreign foreigners in the land. Uh, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Canaan. Uh, Jebusites, you remember this? Jebusites. Uh, the city of Jebus. We were there when we went to Israel. We went to the city of Jebus, but we don't call it the city of Jebus. We call it Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Okay. So now, fast forward to Judges 19. Okay. So the book of Judges, uh, Israel has taken the land. Uh, they are, um, they have failed. Every tribe has failed to take their portion of the land. And so all of the ites that they were supposed to utterly destroy are still living in the land, okay. um, including the Jebusites. And so, uh, so the chapter, uh, chapters four, all the way down, and Judges uh, four, all the way down through uh, chapter 17, uh, 16, um, chronicles the failure of the judges. Every judge that comes on the scene is worse than the last. The last judge of the book is Samson. Okay? He's not the last judge in the Bible, but he is the last judge in the book of Judges. Samuel's going to come in the next book, and he's going to be a judge as well. And so in the book of Deuteronomy, um, there were officers that were set over the nation until Messiah came. Uh, they started with judges, and then priests, and then the kings, and then the prophets. And what we call the Deuteronomic history, uh, this is basically the books after Deuteronomy through the end of the Old Testament. Uh, evaluate this nation based on how they did. And it talks about the failure of the judges. That's chapters uh, 4 through 16. Then the failure of the priests. That's the section that we're going to be in in chapters 17 through 21. And then the failure of the kings. That's the book of kings. And the failure of the prophets. And then they're kicked out of the land. They go back into exile and wait for Messiah to come. Okay? So that's basically what's going on in the Old Testament. Okay? So in chapter uh, chapter 19... 
It came about in those days that there was no king in Israel, and there was a certain Levite staying in the remote part of the hill country of Ephraim who took a concubine for himself. Now, um, the narrator, all of these storytellers, assume that the reader, Israelites, Jews, know the law. So they know when something's good and when something's bad. We don't know the law, so we just read right by it. We might catch that a concubine's not such a great thing, but uh, uh, but there's all kinds of things that you're supposed to know that's not good. Okay, um, it gets so ridiculous that ba basically everything this guy does is wrong. Okay, um, took a concubine for himself from Bethlehem, but his concubine played the harlot. So you've got a priest who has a concubine who plays the harlot to the priest. Now, what was, uh, I don't even know how to evaluate this. First of all, priests shouldn't have concubines. So he deserved to die. She plays the harlot. She deserves to die. And she goes to his father's house, and he goes and tries to win her back, right? Uh, and so... Um, so uh, then her husband rose and went after her to speak tenderly to her to bring her back, verse 3. So she, he goes to his uh, father-in-law's house. Came about in the fourth day, they got up early, verse 5, and prepared to go. And the father talked him into staying again. Okay? Uh, the man, uh, uh, then he, uh, on the fifth day, he, he uh, says, uh, you know, he's, he says, okay, wait until the afternoon, and then you can go. And when the man arose to go along with his concubine, verse 9, uh, behold, the day is drawn to a close, spend the night one more, one more night, but the man was not willing. Okay, so it's late in the day, he gets up and he's going to go. Um, so they depart. Uh, he arose and departed and came to a place opposite Jebus, that's Jerusalem. Um, and there was with him a pair of saddled donkeys, his concubine was with him. When they, were, when they were near Jebus, the day was almost gone, the servants said um, to his master, please come, let us turn aside into this city, the city of the Jebusites, and spend the night. Um, now, at this point, there's not supposed to be a city called Jebus filled with Jebusites. Right? They were supposed to be utterly destroyed. Uh, Israel is not going to overtake Jerusalem until King David. So we still have a little ways. We will not turn aside into the city of the foreigners uh, who are not the sons of Israel, but we will go to Gibeah. Okay, so they're going to go to a city uh, filled with Israelites. Okay. Um, what happens in Gibeah? They go into the city. Uh, they're playing, the, the, the priest here is the traveler. Are you with me? Who is the traveler in G Genesis 19? The two angels. Who judged Sodom and Gomorrah? The two angels. Who's supposed to be judging Israel? The priest. Yeah. So, so he's got a role. So he's he's typecast. Are you with me? In the movie, he's typecast. He's supposed to play the role of the angel. Okay. Uh, there is a man who invites him in, playing the role of uh, of Lot. Okay. Uh, and then there's the men of the city, uh, who are the wicked Sodom and Gomorrah people. The problem is, who are the wicked Sodom and Gomorrah people? 
These are the Israelites. This is not how it's supposed to go. What happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? <laughs> Wiped them out. I mean, they're the, they are the, if you want to say someone is evil in the Bible, who's the worst of the worst? Sodom and Gomorrah, right? They are the bottom of the barrel, worst of the worst, wiped off the map, you know, and <laughs> deserved, deserved it, okay? So, um, so the old man, verse 16, was coming out of the field, um, and uh, he lifted up his eyes and saw the travelers in the open city and said, where are you going? Where are you coming from? And they said, we're passing from uh, Bethlehem. And so he invites him in. He says, you can't stay in the, uh, in the town square. So he took them into his house and gave their donkeys fodder, verse 21, and washed their feet, and they ate and they drank. And while they were making merry, behold, the men of the city surrounded uh, certain worthless fellows, sons of Belial. That's uh, language that you're going to uh, become very familiar with in, uh, in Samuel. Uh, uh, who are the sons of Belial in Samuel? Remember this? Um, when the curtains go up in the book of Samuel, who's, who's running this? Who's in charge? The high priest. Who's the high priest? You remember? His name is Eli. And he has two sons. And they're called sons of Belial. <laughs> this, is, this is not going well. So the father's not teaching the sons very well. And he's the high priest. And he's got little uh, worthless sons. So that language is going to show up again and again. Uh, they surrounded the house, pounding on the door, and they spoke to the owner and they said, bring out uh, the man who came uh, so that we may have relations with him. And the man, the owner, uh, said, no, no. Uh, and so uh, here's my virgin daughter and his concubine. So remember, Lot's going to send out his two daughters, right? And now here, they, they're going to send out his daughter and uh, concubine. At this point in the story, what does the angel do in chapter 19? He opens the door and does what? Sends forth his hand, strikes the, uh, the people. Um, the, uh, the, uh, the, the Levite, he opens the door, but he doesn't send forth his hand to strike the people. He sends forth his concubine. Uh, the, the angel strikes them with blindness. Um, but they strike her with, you know, they, they ravage her. Does that make sense? Okay. So, so what the author is doing here is showing that the role of the priest is to be the judge. Okay. And he is to act just as the angels act in Genesis 19, but he doesn't. Okay. He actually does the opposite. You remember what happens after this? So uh, they basically, the story's not clear if they kill the girl or not. Uh, and so the Levite hacks her up into 12 pieces. This is a wonderfully graphic story. And then sends her 12 body parts out throughout the nation. Okay. And um, uh, to, uh, to complain about this grievous act that the Gibeites is So here comes uh, the people, uh, and they gather up as one man. Okay, uh, that's 
that language is interesting. They gather up as one man. Now, when there was a case in Israel, the witnesses were to come before you kind of prosecution and the defense were to come before the judge. Who was to be the judge? Well, the priest or the judge who was in office in that day was to be the priest or the judge. Okay? Um, this is all in the, in the law, Book of Deuteronomy. Okay? Um, so the prosecution and the defense become for the, the judge. The judge hears the case and then he renders a verdict. Okay? Now, so who's supposed to be the judge in this story? Well, the priest is supposed to be the judge in this story. But the priest doesn't operate as the priest or the judge. He operates as the prosecution. Gibeites are the defense, and the people who gathered as one man are the judge. Well, the, the people don't judge with righteous judgment. Uh, the priest offers a false witness, so he's supposed to die. Uh, the people pronounce judgment on the Gibeites because of the uh, evidence of the false witness. Right? And so who's wrong in this story? Everybody is. I mean, they're all wrong. Okay? So this is where the story of I plays out again. Okay? So you've got the Israelites who gathered against Gibeah. They're wrong. The Gibeites are wrong. And so they're going to go to battle. Now, did you catch this? Israel's going to battle against Israel. Meanwhile, Jebus is over there. They're going, hey, what's going on over there? What's all that commotion across the road? <laughs> so... So Jebus is sitting there unaltered, spotless, and clean. And the Gibeites and the Israelites are fighting against each other. And who wins? Well, the, the Israelites go against the Gibeites, and the Israelites lose. And then they go against the Gibeites again, and they lose again. And then they go against the Gibeites, and then they wipe out the Gibeites. And at the end of the story, the city of Gibeah is gone up in smoke just like the first you know, Sodom and Gomorrah and I. But the language of Gibeah going up in smoke is not the language of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's the language of I. In other words, Israel's supposed to be wiping out all of the ites in the land. They're not. The Lord is wiping them out of the land because they're wicked. Does that make sense? And so I remember reading this story and actually, when you get into the Hebrew, the Lord actually assigns straight out of the law. If you do this, then you deserve to be struck dead. And so uh, that struck language goes right with them all the way through the story. You know, some of them are going to uh, nafal, going to fall in battle. Others are going to be nafal, going to be struck in battle. Uh, all of the language goes along. You're sitting there going, nobody can tell a story this tight. Nobody can tell a story that is this um, uniquely crafted, where every word matters with great precision. There's no way. No, no. I mean, you know, there's some good storytellers. There's nobody like that. And the more I would dig into these stories of the Bible, um, I realized that, that inspiration wasn't simply an issue of the wording of the language or the words on the page, but it was the author behind history who's guiding the story. 
and then guiding the hand of the author to put it on the page. Does that make sense? So it's way bigger than just words on a page. So when Paul writes the book of Romans, um, and we debate Romans chapter 1 and, you know, views of wickedness or does God reveal himself, that, that's not even uh, really the issue. The issue is uh, this God of creation who's crafted all of history and set it out in succession, and it's going exactly according to plan. Exactly. Now, when you think about the implications of the plan going exactly according to plan, uh, then you realize that God is sovereign. And there's a lot of implications to that. He's sovereign over whatever this COVID-19 thing is, or he's sovereign over whatever ridiculous stuff's going on in our culture, or any other culture. I was talking to one of our... Um, guys at the seminary, he's uh, one of our uh, chaplains, and uh, he's a black guy, very gifted. Um, he says, man, I can't make sense of what's going on. I said, not very complicated. And so I sent him a text response. He said, man, can I send this to, to everybody? I, you know, all of our small group leaders and all that at the seminary. I said, sure. And this is what I said. Um, Make sense uh, of what? The, the just, riots yeah, the, the riots and the, all of this stuff. Even the COVID-19 has become political on both sides. Uh, people say that they want, quote, social justice or that they want justice. They don't. The world does not want justice. What they want is someone, they want their own view of right and wrong to be imposed on everyone else. What does justice, true justice, look like? I'll tell you what it looks like. It's the return of the king. All right? When the king comes, there will be justice. Until the king comes, there will not be justice. Okay? Uh, there was a need for justice uh, from day one. Well, day right after day seven, okay? Right after the fall, Cain kills Abel. Uh, the wicked have persecuted the righteous. This has always been the case, okay? Uh, what the world is after is power and authority to exert their will on everyone else. And so you can talk about black, white, or you can talk about Irish versus English, or you can talk about one tribe of Muslims versus another tribe or, or sect of Muslims, or you can talk about different uh, people in Israel, or you can talk about uh, Catholics and Protestants killing each other. And the, look, it, the human condition has not changed. Okay? Um, we don't want justice. We want our view of justice. And I want my view of justice imposed upon you. And I'm willing to, uh, you know, affiliate with someone else to the extent that they agree with me so that we can impose our justice on you until I disagree with you and then you're out. Does that make sense? So this, uh, this justice thing, the king of righteousness is coming. Uh, and so what I told him is the world acts like the world. 
um, that doesn't surprise me. It doesn't shock me, nor should it shock you. What should shock us and what should concern us, same thing with this story, is when, uh, when Israel starts acting like the world, when Israel starts acting like Sodom and Gomorrah, we've got a problem. When we start acting like the world, we got a problem. When we start using verses out of context to justify our view, our position, our desires, our, you know, that's a problem. Uh, then the church has become very worldly and doesn't care about righteousness reigning. We care about our view. And so what's interesting is when you start talking about the return of Christ, everybody says, oh, yeah, we're for the return of Christ. All Christians say, oh, yeah, return of Christ. Come, Lord Jesus. Well, what if the Baptists are wrong and uh, Christ, re Christ returns looks more Lutheran? <laughs> or what if the Lutherans wrong? What if the what if the return of Christ looks a lot more Catholic? Uh oh. Well, in other words, uh, what if uh, what if this doesn't go down like we say it's going to go down? Or Jesus isn't interested in our view of righteousness. He couldn't care less about our view of righteousness, right? You remember the angel who appears in Judges chapter 3, right? Uh, it's the same angel that shows back up in the book of Joshua when Joshua asks, are you for us or against us? And he says, wrong question. The question is not, uh, are, am I, the angel, for or against you? The question is, are you for or against me? Right? Uh, your view of righteousness doesn't matter. The only view of righteousness, the only view of justice that matters is here, right? And we should act with justice and righteousness. But know this. It's a fool's errand until the Christ returns. So I tell my students all the time, I am, I am not for representative republics. I'm not for democracies. I'm for an uh, authoritarian dictator who wipes out everybody who's op who opposes him. His name is Jesus. He's coming. Right. So you better get on board with, with that. Does that make sense? Right. Um, and so, um, so as I look at this, you know, some of this stuff that's going on, we're, we're being forced. The world is trying to force us to pick between two evils. Are you for Stalin or are you for Hitler? I'm going, uh, excuse me, but I'm for neither. <laughs> I'm not for... I'm not for any of this, right? Uh, does, that, does that make sense to you? So a couple things. One, um, inspiration. I was convinced of inspiration because of the story. That what this word says is coming, comes, it happens, right? Uh, the exact timing of the appearance of Christ in reference to the uh, the 69 weeks of, uh, of Daniel, um, the, all of the prophecies of the Old Testament that foretell this Christ is coming, uh, all of the, uh, not only of Christ's coming, but of Christ's rejection of the building of the church, all of this is already in the story, all the way back in Moses. Moses tells this story, you know, 1,500 years before it ever happened. That 
is inspiration. In fact, in the book of Isaiah, God says, what other God can, can pronounce history and then bring it to pass? Because he's sovereign. He is absolutely in control, which means he's in control of this stuff. He's allowing this ridiculous stupidity to, to happen so that you see the stark difference between when his son comes. Um, so inspiration is not just in the, you know, was it one day, 24 hours, or was it a, you know, that evolution, all those, that's not even an issue for me. It says one day, one day, that ship sailed. Right? Um, inspiration is much bigger than that. It is the grandeur of the whole story. And it is about the king who is coming to establish righteousness. He's the king of righteousness, king of justice. But it's not the justice that we seek. It's not the justice that we proclaim. It's not our view of good and evil or right or wrong. Uh, it is God's view. Uh, one little quick note on that. It, it strikes me how much our culture is changing and how much the beliefs of the church are changing with the culture. Um, views on all kinds of social issues in the church have changed since the 60s, 1960s, dramatically so. Changed in the culture, changed in the church. And then we try to justify those things in the church and in the seminary because we don't want to offend the culture. I got news for you. Jesus is not running for office. And he doesn't care about your view. He's not very um, politically correct. He couldn't care less what your view is. So I tell my students all the time, I don't care what your view is. And they look at me like, well, that's offensive. And I say, nor should you care what my view is. Because you're not going to be judged by my view, and you're not going to be judged by your view. You're going to be judged by what is good and right in the eyes of the Lord. Period. And how do you know that? Because it says it right here. So get on board. Well, if you start believing this, guess what happens? The world will hate you. Why will the world hate you? Because this is against the world. The world hated me, the world hates you, but fear not, I've overcome the world. Those words sound familiar to you? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's that's just uh, Bible talk. That's just Jesus. Talk. So um, uh, I have a buddy uh, who, uh, he said that the reason that all this stuff is happening is because the world loves the darkness because their deeds are evil. So don't be shocked when the world loves the darkness because their deeds are evil. For us, the struggle is not to be sucked in to being children of darkness and joining in with their deeds of evil. That makes sense. Their desires of evil. Just all stupid, stupid, sin, sin. Start with it in your life. 
Try not to look like Sodom and Gomorrah. Stop. Good. All right. Any questions? Does that make sense? Uh, back over there. So we really yes. should just stop trying to convince people. I mean, I, I think we can Yeah. Yeah. So uh, do we try to convince? You can't convince. You cannot convince people of the gospel. Why not? Because that. Because yeah, that's right. Because you're not God. Um, salvation is wholly and solely an act of God. Yeah. Now, um, Christianity is a reasonable faith, okay? and so so much of our time, so much of my time at the seminary was spent. Um, Getting students thinking well again, thinking consistently, because we hold mutually exclusive thoughts all the time, all the time, and uh, and we we'll try to weave those out as much as we can, right? And try to bring our views in line with with the scriptures in context. And so, yeah, I think we can convince um, believers. We're trying to convince the world. Good luck. Uh, you can pray for them. You can share the gospel with them, and then allow God to move, convict them of uh, their sin, convince them of the person of Christ uh, and their need for uh, salvation and the Savior. But that's God's job. Our job is to share the gospel. God's job is to do the rest. It's wonderfully free. Our job is to be faithful. Let God be God. Right? I don't have to convince them of anything. But I do have to shoot straight. Don't mix words. Uh, did you notice that Jesus, every time Jesus spoke, they tried to kill him? <laughs> you notice every time Paul spoke, they tried to kill him? Peter and John gets exiled, and Stephen preaches this wonderful sermon, and they kill him. So what's the world's response to the gospel? What's it always been? Kill him. Why? Because that's Satan's response. So if you're sharing the gospel and they're not saying, kill him, <laughs> maybe you're being a little too nicey nice and fluffy fluff and actually not sharing the gospel. Fluffy fluff. That's it. That's a new one. I'm going to hold on to that. I like it. <laughs> Shoot it straight. But uh, let that just quick uh, quick story. Um, this will tie into our Israel folks. Um, when we went to Israel, there's a shop there. Um, help me, uh, Zach. Yeah, Zach's uh, shop. Zach was a Muslim. Uh, Zach was in prison um, for life for being a suicide uh, bomber. He was a terrorist, trained terrorist. And he was going to kill as many as he could kill in suicide bombs. He was imprisoned uh, by the Israel government. Israel's government. He was, uh, through a negotiation and prisoner swap, he was let out. Went right back to training to be a terrorist and a uh, suicide bomber. Uh, someone shared the gospel with him. 
and he said, uh, he said it made me so mad. I wanted to kill him on the spot. And uh, I said, well, what was it that made you so mad? He said, he said, you know, the difference between me, you and me, Zach, is I love my enemy and you hate yours. He said, I wanted to kill him for that, <laughs> which is greatly ironic, right? He said, but it bugged me forever until finally uh, the Lord worked and he believed the gospel. And so now he runs a, an antiquity shop there in, in uh, the Christian quarter in, uh, in Jerusalem, downtown Jerusalem, the old city Jerusalem. And he funds uh, the, the church uh, in Israel through his, uh, through his shop. So our job is to share the gospel just as that person did. And if their response is, I hate your guts, good. We've got our two sides. We've got our two camps. While we were yet enemies, Christ died for us, Paul says. Israel had gone over, joined the camp of Satan. And Christ still lays down his life. And so if, if, if Christ loves his enemies, should we not love our enemies? So anyway, that's it. Enough preaching. We have 15 minutes. Let me close in a word of prayer, and then we'll get over to the park, and we'll see how hot we can be in the sun. <laughs> Lord, thanks for this morning, uh, for our time. Uh, thank you that you love us, uh, even when we're unlovable, uh, and that you uh, care for us, even when we're when we're evil. So uh, we thank you that uh, your son has laid down his life for us. Uh, he has made propitiation for our sins. He intercedes for us in our flesh. And so for all that, we give you great thanks in Christ's name. Amen. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Thank you, David.